If you'll take your Bibles once again, turn to Psalm 103, Psalm 103. I'm just going to give a simple exposition. I don't have a cute title for the message today at all. It's just an exposition of the Word of God. We have already read it in its entirety, so I'll read these verses as we come to them, but for sake of time, we'll not read them all together at the beginning. This is a Thanksgiving psalm, so this is an exposition, a Thanksgiving exposition. Psalm 103 is forever etched in my mind whenever I think of the Thanksgiving season. Permit me to reminisce just a little bit. This psalm is really personal with me. I memorized it at an early age at the family altar. And um, my dad has been with the Lord more than 20 years, but uh, you didn't get away from family altar without memorizing Scripture. There were times I didn't appreciate it. Boy, I sure do now. I sure do now. Uh, the, the things God brings back to my mind and heart. Uh, we quoted this psalm at every Thanksgiving around the table if, um, if Isaiah 53 is a miniature gospel, Psalm 103 is a miniature hymn book, okay? It, it carries that kind of weight and significance. It's a precious gem of Scripture. It's one of those comprehensive chapters in the Bible. So let's do a deep dive into it, or at least deeper than maybe we would other passages. Maybe you're thinking, ah, oh, pastor, Thanksgiving is behind us. <laughs> We're gearing up for Christmas. Can I just remind you that thankfulness needs to be the default setting of every child of God, all right? We're to enter into His gates with Thanksgiving every time we come. I don't know if we think about that. It would be good if we did. This is not about the calendar. This is about character. You'll be a lot happier, and the people around you will enjoy you a lot more if you'll just become a thankful person and cultivate that gratitude attitude that Ron Hamilton taught us about through Patch the Power. I miss that guy. I really do. Now, don't plead your natural disposition. It's so easy to say, well, it's best, you know, some people are bubbly, you know, they're just always thankful. It's just their default setting. Look, we ought to be able to say with Paul, I am what I am, not by my disposition, not by my natural temperament. I am what I am. What did he say by the, ah, the grace of God. So God can give you what you don't have by nature. He can make you a happy person, even if you're miserable and crotchety and get up off the wrong side of the bed most every morning. So I hope we'll uh, think about that. This psalm was written by David. He wrote most of the psalms. I think it was written by David in his mature years. This is David at his best. This inspired ode was written, no doubt, in his mature years when he had a fuller appreciation of a sense of the preciousness of forgiveness. And you know how that comes when we have a fuller 
keener sense of our sin. I think the fact that he must have written it in his mature years is borne out also by uh, his reflections on the weakness and frailty of men. That's what somebody who's been around the block a few times says. He reflects on the weakness and frailty of men. A hymn of praise. It touches all the bases that we as God's children should enumerate as we lift our hearts and voices in thanksgiving. I mean, the psalmist touches on every string of his harp and his heart here. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In those chapters, we have the Redeemer's Sermon on the Mount, but here we have the redeemed, our song on the Mount. Many of you who keep a prayer list, that's good. I know we could become slaves to it. It could become mechanical. We don't, we've talked a lot about that, especially during COVID. Nothing wrong with a prayer list, but I ask you, do you have a praise list? Do you regularly thank God and praise Him for things? Well, here's a good template for it, okay? You, you can't improve on this inspired template. So we'll get into it little by little here and read the verses as we come to them. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 5, gratitude for personal mercies received. David starts out by talking to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless His holy name. Again, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits. Now sometimes if you talk to yourself, people are going to make you think you're strange. But actually, you're in pretty good company if you do it in the right way. In the Psalms, David talked to himself a lot. He rebuked himself. He expostulated with himself. He examined himself. He communed with his own heart upon his bed at night. He reasoned with himself. He told himself repeatedly to bless the Lord. Now, people may think you're strange if they hear you do it out loud. But if as a result of your soliloquy you are more in tune with God, I wouldn't worry about what people think. David roused his soul. You know we have to do that. We have to stir ourselves up to pray, to praise, to worship. Some of you have been saved since you were little children. I, I, I raised my hand on that and I, I'm so thankful for the things I was spared because of a Christian home. But let me tell you one of the pitfalls of that, if you're not careful. Everything becomes old hat. You've heard it all. You say it mechanically. You sing it mechanically. You do everything when, exactly at the right time when people expect it. But your heart is not in it, God help us. It becomes second and third generation. And then there's an exodus from the church and we wonder why. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Soul music is the best kind of music. And I'm not talking about a recent genre. I'm talking about music from the heart. You know, our music may be good, conservative, authentic, correct, musically good, unlike much of the stuff today, aesthetically pleasing. But if it does not come from our hearts, it doesn't please the Lord. 
O my soul, bless the Lord. And only saints can bless the Lord. All his works praise him, as David says in his song, but only his redeemed ones can intelligently bless him. Now, how can, how can we bless someone who is already superlatively, infinitely blessed and happy? How can we add to God's blessing? Well, maybe this will help you. The original meaning of the word bless means to express favor in speech. And so we bless the Lord when we express in words our love and worship for Him. I hope, trust that's what you did when you stood to sing with others today. We bless Him by returning our praise for His blessings and the tokens of His favor. Remember what David said, if I should declare and speak of them, those blessings, they are more in number than the sand. So we, we won't run out of material to work with if we really reflect on God's blessings and bless Him for it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He says again in verse 2, that's not a vain repetition. When you see repetitions in the Bible, God repeats Himself for a reason. We have to rouse ourselves repeatedly to really praise and bless the Lord. Just a little over a month, we'll be making New Year's resolutions, if not before, But so often they fizzle out. You know why? We don't rouse ourselves repeatedly. And we forget. Our memory needs continual prompting, jogging, stirring, exercise. We do this in other areas. Why can't we do it in the spiritual? Harps have to be tuned. Pianos have to be tuned. I love the piano. I play the piano. But there, at times there's been nobody else who could tune it. So even though I'm not a very good one, I had to tune my own piano. But I couldn't stand it unless I did. Harps have to be tuned. Instruments have to be tuned. Voices have to get warmed up. Athletes have to do their stretches and calisthenics or you would injure yourself. And sometimes we need to warm up to bless the Lord aright. It may take us a few minutes. Our sluggish hearts have to be primed sometimes. Bless the Lord on my soul and forget not all his benefits, all his benefits. Isn't it interesting? David summoned all that was within him to remember all God's benefits. The one needs to be met by the other. We're so prone to forget. I'm sure that when Adam left the creative hand of God, he had a much better memory than any of us. But that changed pretty quick, didn't it? And we're all sons of Adam, the fallen Adam. And we forget. We forget our blessings so quickly. Oh, now when it comes to remembering injuries done to us and people who have wronged us, we've got memories like an elephant. We revisit them and we recycle them again and again and again. Some people say, I I just haven't learned how to meditate. No, you have, just in the wrong way. When you worry, you're meditating. When you revisit injuries people have done you, (laughs) you're churning that, you're chewing your cud, you're meditating. You're recycling. 
Whatever it takes, folks, to remind yourself to thank the Lord, do it. Whatever aid you need to employ, photo albums, journals, alarms on your phone, prompts, scrapbooks, you don't hear about them as much as you used to. Even if you're as old-fashioned as I am and you have to do stick-up notes and tie a ribbon around your finger or remind your secretary to remind you. You know, like that guy that said, where did I put, I put that thing close to my heart. Heart, 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 heart. didn't know where his heart was. Whatever it takes, remind yourself to praise the Lord. I think about King Ahasuerus, uh, the, the king in the time of Esther in Persia. Remember that night he couldn't sleep? And so what did he do? Well, he read the chronicles of the empire. I'm pretty sure to most people they would have been boring. But he couldn't sleep. So he read the chronicles of the empire and he discovered that Mordecai, that Jew in his court, had saved his life and never been rewarded for it. Listen, there's a spiritual lesson there. Christ has saved more than our lives. He saved our souls, not just from death, but from sin and hell. How can we not render a recompense to Him? Oh, forget not all His benefits. Whatever it takes to remind yourself, do it. You'll be amply rewarded. So David runs down the list, recounting God's benefits here. Verses 3 through 5. The very top of the list is something that deserves to be there, and that's forgiveness. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, verse 3. Forgiveness is first in order. It's first in value. Remember when Jesus was going to heal that paralytic man that was lowered into his presence on a stretcher by four of his friends. He took care of the most important problem first. He said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then he addressed the obvious. He healed him. He said, take up thy bed and walk. Forgiveness is our most important need. But yet if you were to go out on the street today or go to the airport, which is packed, 30 million people flying, 55 million people traveling. There were more people flying than than driving this year. And you were to go to those people and have a little man on the street interview and say, what is your greatest need? I doubt seriously you'd find one for a long time that would say forgiveness. And yet it is. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Aren't you glad that God doesn't get tired of doing that? I mean, He just forgives us multiple times a day. Notice how far-reaching it is. All thine iniquities. God forgives our sins of omission and our sins of commission. God forgives our presumptuous sins. He forgives our secret sins. He, He forgives our sins of the flesh as well as our sins of the Spirit. He forgives past, present, future sins are forgiven for His name's sake. The word iniquities could be broken down into its two component parts, inequities. It's the Hebrew word avon. From the root meaning crooked, perverse, deviant. Could I remind you that iniquity is any deviation from God's perfect law? And so often we 
are satisfied if we just don't do something that is frowned upon by society as egregious and scandalous. No, any deviation from God's perfect law is iniquity, and we need to examine ourselves by God's standard. Oh, how well David knew the spiritual mercies of God. And his great sin, of course, he committed two great sins that are recorded in the Bible. But the one remembered the most is his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the resultant murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. But yet his repentance was great, though his sin was great. And his restoration was great. And he just received with meekness and humility the forgiveness of the Lord. And it's all recorded for our instruction and our admonition. Forgiveness. I've got news for you. We're not going to run out of our need for that this side of heaven. I hope we just keep on keeping short accounts with the Lord. Who healeth all thy diseases. There's healing there. Sicknesses of the body. Sicknesses of mind. Sicknesses of soul. All of these have entered into the world because of sin. That's not to say that it is a sin to be sick. Some are sick today, cannot be here. Glad you're able to watch by live stream. We appreciate that. I hope God will touch you, heal you soon. But though it is not necessarily a sin to be sick, all sickness in the world is because of sin. It's the collateral damage of sin. There was no sickness or death in the world before sin entered the world. And so when sin is eventually eradicated, diseases of all kinds, physical, emotional, and mental will vanish. Why? Because the cause is gone. Iniquity. Our God is a tender, forgiving, loving Father. And He's the great physician. And it's so true, not just a cliche, the great physician still makes house calls. Not many other doctors do. Jesus does. Now, He still heals us. He has all kinds of ways of doing it. Each malady may call for a different method, balm. He may use the built-in restorative processes of the body, this body that is so fearfully and wonderfully made, as David said in Psalm 139. He may use doctors and medicines. So please don't fall for the lie of the faith healers that it's a sin to go to one. Some of them would go so far as to say that. He gives men wisdom. He gives them the raw materials to develop medicines and balms for us. He may use that to heal you. He may do it supernaturally through prayer using no apparent physical or man-made means whatsoever. But regardless of how God does it, let's come to the fact and agree that it is He who heals us. Let's lose sight of secondary causes. He's the one who heals all our diseases. Satan is sometimes permitted by God to afflict his children. It certainly was in the case of Job. And God let that happen. God permitted Satan to touch him. Probably a whole year that he was in that condition. But then God healed him from it. And so my question is this. We all get sick. Probably very few people in this room today or even listening and watching by live stream have not gotten sick sometime this year. Now, some of you are very, very physically fit and you take the right vitamins and stuff and you, you keep away from people that are sick. 
Good for you. Maybe you've gone several years without getting sick. I did once. <laughs> I went several years. But I made up for it the next year, I promise. But when the Lord heals us, whenever and however he does, when our fever breaks, when our pain is relieved, when our vital signs return to normal, when our appetite returns, do we stop to praise him, bless him, thank him with all of our hearts. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. I've used the word rescue. He rescues us. The word redeem there is a wonderful word. In the New Testament, it takes on the precious meaning of being ransomed, purchased, bought back, bought back off the slave market of sin and released, set free. But in the Old Testament, the principal meaning of the word redeem was to to rescue and to protect. And so we read in Psalm 25, verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And certainly that's the essence of the meaning here in Psalm 103. From destruction, the word destruction means literally the pit of corruption, the pit of corruption. God rescues us from hell and from danger in this life. How often are we just inches or seconds from a major accident. That happens far more times than we even realize. When we get to heaven, I think God's going to show us some of those things. We were just a a whisker from death. God redeems us both by blood and by power. He certainly did that with Israel, who the things that happened to Israel are an example to us Israel was redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. How? By the blood that was put on the doorpost and, and on, uh, on the post and on the lintel, picturing the cross of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. There was one more thing that needed to be done. Israel released because of the blood on the doorpost and delivered from the death angel. They were trapped at the, at the Red Sea. The hordes of Egypt and Pharaoh were closing in on them from behind. There were mountains too high to scale on either side. And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God completed the redemption by interposing his power at the Red Sea. And those waters rolled up like a scroll and Israel went through on dry ground. That had never happened before. God did it. He redeems by blood and by power. He still does. I see Miss Becky back there today. Never forget what God did for her late husband, Albert, more than once. He was a comeback guy of the century. I mean, he had more lives than the proverbial cat. And God redeemed him from destruction. I think it was 2008 or 2009, I remember this. He was as good as dead in a Rex Ice intensive care room. But God brought him back. God bought him back and God brought him back. You know why? God had 12 more years of ministry for Albert Watkins. Multitudes were saved because of that little correspondence ministry in that little home in Clayton. And I used to tell him this, and I'll tell you this. We are invincible until our work is done. We're invincible until our work is done. And I'm telling you, when I 
When my work is done, I don't want to loiter on my heavenly journey. I want God to take me home. I've seen some people that kind of do damage at the end. I want to get home before dark. And I don't want to dishonor my master. Let's value the continuation of our life only that we may further glorify him. Otherwise, why do we cumber the ground? Rescue, redemption. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, the latter part of verse 4. That's the idea there, and you may have these words in your version of the Bible. Steadfast love. The word translated loving kindness in our King James Version is a a wonderful, many-faceted word in the Hebrew. No single word in English can begin to translate it. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and it's probably best translated steadfast love. It's the same word rendered mercy in verse 11, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. It's a wonderful word. Oh, how God honors us. He crowns us with this loving kindness. Sin depraves us. Sin degrades us. But God pardons, and when he pardons, he restores, and when he restores, he honors, and he gives us that, that which was back, that which was lost in the fall, in the garden. Yea, we get receive more than we had in the garden with unfallen Adam. Not just kindness, but loving kindness. Not just mercy, but tender mercies. Oh, folks, we need to realize how good our God is, how gracious he is. And praise him. Spurgeon said, the crown God gives is studded with the gems of grace. It's lined with a velvet of of loving kindness. It's decked with the jewels of mercy. It's made soft for the head to wear by a lining of tenderness. Beautiful expression, so true. I think of Boaz when I think of loving kindness. Now, Boaz had a a real motive here, you know. He was in love with Ruth. He was determined to get her. And if that other near kinsman didn't do what he should have done, Boaz was ready. Remember the instructions Boaz gave to his servants in the field, this great farmer, this wealthy farmer? As Ruth with the other poor people would come and glean the corners of the field, and take it home for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. He said this to the workmen, leave some handfuls of purpose. Leave some handfuls on purpose. You know God delights to do that for his children. He loves to give us the desires of our hearts. Sometimes he just drops little tokens right in front of us just to remind us that he still loves us because we kind of tend to conclude otherwise because of some bad things that have clustered together and happened all in a row. No special reason for it. He just says, I'm still here. I love you. I've got your best interest at heart. Some of you remember when Gracia Burnham stood behind this pulpit a number of years ago. In fact, it may have been in the old building. And she gave her testimony. If 
you don't know who Gracia Burnham is, she was the one who, along with her husband, Martin, the late Martin Burnham, were kidnapped by the Abu Sayyaf terrorists in the Philippines, and uh, they remained as hostages for 376 days. Her husband was killed in a shootout with the army, but she was delivered, shot in the leg, recovered. She still gives her testimony. She's been honored in many ways. But at times during that 376-day kidnapping, uh, she despaired of life. She got pretty negative. So would you, and so would I. On one occasion, she just said, I wish I had a hamburger. I mean, she just had a little pity party, but she said, can I even get a hamburger? The food they had to eat was terrible. One of the terrorists went to the McDonald's in that area where they were at the time, and they had the McDonald's in the Philippines is called Jollibee's. And came back with a big old bag of hamburgers and french fries. Now she went to the extreme with that. She thought, oh, this is God's token that he's going to deliver me. It did happen for a while. You think you'd ever forget that? It's kind of like David saying, oh, that I had some water from the well of Bethlehem. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? He sure can. He can supply a Jollibee's hamburger for hostages in the jungle. Even in our trials, He drops those little handfuls of purpose for us. Do we praise Him? Who satisfies thy mouth with good things, satisfying food. Probably most of us ate so much we were miserable and not just satisfied Thursday. Oh, the blessing of having a sense of taste to enjoy all the varieties of good food. And we should stop to bless God for good, wholesome, tasty food. It's abundance. It's availability. It's relatively low cost. And you ask, I know it's really increased in the last year or so. But check other parts of the world. Just go to Zimbabwe one time. Even if you have a pile of money, there's not much on the shelves to buy. So that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. This refers in the Hebrew to the annual molting of the eagle's feathers after which it looks fresh and young. It's amazing how God does that. Do you know that? I just looked this up. This, do you know that an eagle loses two feathers at a time, one on either side, so that it won't affect its flight? <laughs> Look it up. That's our creator God. It's interesting, elsewhere in the Psalms, David has compared himself to the forlorn owl in the desert, to the helpless sparrow alone upon the housetop. But here he uses the, the figure of the, of the king of birds, the eagle. And we're reminded of Isaiah 40, verse 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, let's be content with God's gracious provision. Let's be satisfied. What an abundance of good food we have in the United States of America. What a variety. People have never been here are blown away when they come. Maybe you read about it, maybe you didn't, but back in uh, 1989, the president of the, of the, the former Soviet Union, Russia, Boris Yeltsin, 
came over to see the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And then it was an unscheduled stop, but he wanted to see a supermarket. So he took his entourage, all of the men that were with him, and they went to Randall's Supermarket in the Houston area. He could not believe what he saw on the shelves. In fact, he asked the store manager through his translator if he had to get special training to provide all this stuff. And he told his fellow Russians and the entourage with him that if if the people of Russia, most of whom had to wait in line for a long time to get goods, if they saw the condition of U.S. supermarkets, he said there would be a revolution. He said that then. And probably the revolution that did did take place was, was more due to that visit to Randall's supermarket than any buildup of the military or nuclear arms. But we just assume, take it for granted. And, and if our favorite brand isn't there in the store, oh boy, we come back miserable, complaining. I could go on and on. We are so blessed. And then beginning in verse 6 and continuing through most of the rest of the psalm, David just kind of hones in on what God is and not just what he does. May I submit to you that no Thanksgiving season would be complete and truly God-honoring that did not have a time when we extol our God for His attributes, for who He is, not just what He does. Any old dog will lick the hand that feeds it. I hope you're more than a dog. You've got a conscience and a soul and a heart that intelligently thanks God for who He is. So when you look at the gratitude for divine attributes displayed, and I'll be brief with this and then we'll be done. At the top of the list is righteousness and justice. Verse 6, the Lord executeth righteousness and judgment or justice for all that are oppressed. It is precisely because God is righteous that He acts in justice. Notice it's not with certain classes well established by the media that are considered oppressed, but to all that are oppressed. God is slow to anger, but He will punish. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham exclaimed, as it's recorded in Genesis 18, verse 25. Sometimes the wheels of God's wrath grind slowly, but they do grind exceedingly thin. He may not always pay up on Saturday night, but let me tell you, He will pay up. He's just because He's righteous. The Bible says in Psalm 9, verse 16, that our God is known by the judgment which He executes. You don't hear many sermons on that. We want a pick-me-up sermon when we come to church, and I hope this sermon will pick you up. But our God is known by the judgment that He executes. In view of that, let's be patient and meek under suffering and persecution until God arises to vindicate Himself, to avenge us, as He did the widow in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. But I remind you that God is still holy, God is still just. God still intervenes in the affairs of men. The things that happen don't just happen as far as he's concerned. 
And I'll say something that you're probably not going to hear from anybody else. And please understand my motives here. I love Israel. I take literally the one that blesses Israel, God will bless. One of the reasons God has blessed the United States of America is because we've been a friend to Israel. But the Israel that's over there in the land of Israel is not the Israel of the end times. It's not the Israel that God is going to bless. They have gathered in unbelief. They are secular. Tel Aviv is one of the most wicked cities in the world. First, almost 300 people killed by Hamas. You know what they were doing? They were at a music festival. And what you did not see and what you did not hear from the press was that they were dancing half naked around a huge statue of Buddha. You would only find it in a few incidental frames. It was a new age thing. Do you think God is any different today in what He does about that as from what He was in the day of Aaron and Moses when they danced around the golden calf? Check me out, folks. See if I'm telling you the truth. Our God is known by the judgment that He executes. And then one of His The thing's true about him is that he reveals himself. Verse 7, self-revelation. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The God who is unknown to the heathen needs not be unknown to us. He manifests himself to us in ways that he does not do to the world. As Judas, not Iscariot, asked that question of Jesus in John 14, verse 22. How is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts, his wonders, his unusual doings to the children of Israel. Israel, are you listening? Israel saw less of God than did Moses with whom God spoke face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses understood God's ways, not just his acts. Even a dog can predict his master's acts if he knows him well enough, has been around him. But he doesn't know his inner workings. He doesn't know his ways. He doesn't know the springs of his motivation. Have you ever stopped to thank God for revealing himself in this book? Where would we be without it? No roadmap. No resume of God's character. No way of knowing for sure what He really expects and how to please Him. No food for our faith to feed on. God's self-revelation. We need to thank Him for it. And then His mercy and tender pity, and with this I'll be done. Verses 8 and following are, are some of the sweetest verses in the Bible to me. I find myself quoting them and claiming them very often And you'll hear me just refer to them even from the pulpit, even in an unscheduled way. I think of these verses when I don't have a Bible before me because I memorize them. Slow to anger, the middle part of verse 8. Oh, God can get angry. He can get angry with His children. 
but it's his strange work. As, as uh, Spurgeon said, unlike sinful man's anger, God's anger is a controlled burn. My son Chad is here today, captain, firefighter in Raleigh. He knows what a controlled burn is. And that's the fire of God's anger. God doesn't blow up in a fit of passion. And it's a good thing or we'd all be dead. We'd be consumed. He will not always chide. He won't always punish. Neither will he keep his anger forever. Aren't you glad that with God's children, he's not implacable. He doesn't harbor a grudge. He's easy to be entreated. Oh, how we need to emulate him in that. And since we have this wonderful promise that he will not always punish, should we not go to him in confidence that he is more than willing to show us the reason for which he is contending with us, and sometimes he will. Please don't say God doesn't do that to his own. No, no, he does, to his own people. Think of Achan's sin at Jericho that caused a disaster at Ai, the very next destination and place for battle as Israel went into Canaan. Think of Saul's sin in breaking his league with the Gibeonites, and innocent Israelites were affected by that, but God was willing to show why? Think of David's sin of adultery that probably would lasted a whole year before, or close to a year, before Nathan the prophet came and stuck his finger under his nose and said, you're the man. Think of the chambers of imagery that are spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 8 of the wicked men in Jerusalem that God revealed to Ezekiel. God is willing to show us why he is contending with us. Are we willing to be shown? And when he does, will we keep short accounts with him? Because as soon as his children confess and forsake their sin, he's done with his anger. Just as you, when you have to chasten your child and it hurts you to the quick, you embrace them once they're, you know they're repenting and the tears are flowing and they're sorry they did it. How much more our wise, pitying, tender Father. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, verse 10, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. You know, sometimes I hear people say this, and I need to deal with this, and then I'll be done. Sometimes I hear people cry out about God or to God, Lord, I know that I've sinned, but I don't deserve this. I can't take this any longer. Okay, wait a minute. What does the Bible say in Job chapter 11, verse 6, he is exacted of thee less than thine iniquity requireth. And this verse we just read, he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Sometimes we need to just back off and praise the Lord for not throwing the book at us. We need to praise him for what he's not done as well as what he's done. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. I just dealt with that. Oh, how we as fathers feel for our children. We're touched to the quick by their suffering. Their groans get to us. 
how much more does God's pity? In verses 14 through 17, and I'm just summarizing for the sake of time, the psalmist draws a vivid contrast between human frailty and the mercy of God. There's a huge difference between the fading flower and our eternal God. And he concludes this contrast in verse 17. I love this verse. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children. Did you notice the condition there? To them that fear Him. May I remind you and submit to you that only God's covenant children really fear Him. What does the Bible say about the rest of mankind? Here it is, Romans 3.18. Are you listening? There is no fear of God before their eyes. We talk about God fears, but there ain't many of them. The Bible says that it's by the fear of the Lord that men depart from evil. So if you really fear God, sometime soon you're going to depart from evil. You will repent of your sin. You will forsake it. You will place your trust implicitly in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's Son, realizing that your righteousness cannot avail. It is as filthy rags in His sight. David concludes his hymn, The Way Began It, arousing the soul to bless and praise the Lord and all His works and all His hosts. In view of His great mercies, God's great mercies, how can we not bless the Lord? Well, all of our hearts and our soul and our strength, our attitude should be surely the very rocks themselves would cry out if we didn't praise Him, if we held our peace. I'll close with this thought. Do you know what is conspicuously missing in this great, great inspired psalm? This acrostic poem, 22 verses built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There is not one word of supplication in it. Not one word. It's all praise from beginning to end. And God has convicted me, and there's one day a week that I don't ask God for anything. I just do my best to praise Him and thank Him. Oh, that we would focus on our blessings and not on our needs. And sometimes by the, when we get to the end of recounting our blessings, those needs have dissipated. Let's remember that. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, thank you for this gem of inspired Scripture, this template for expressing praise and thanksgiving to you. Help us to hide it in our hearts if we haven't done ourselves, haven't done it already. And even if we have a hard time doing that, it's a long psalm. Help every one of us to stir up ourselves by it, not just one time a year at Thanksgiving season, but continually. Oh, Father, make Friendship Baptist Church a praising people that others may see that new song of praise and fear and trust in the Lord. We pray for Jesus' name and sake and glory. Amen.